expert is or the flight attendant. I don't know what the PCA term for them now is, but um, they will often go through a spiel to tell you all the in-flight safety procedures. And one of them is if in case the cabin is depressurized, you're to take your oxygen mask and put it first on your neighbor, right? No, no, you're supposed to first put it on yourself. And then once you have free-flowing oxygen, then you'll be in a better position to help your neighbor. This is part two of our sermon on forgiveness. If you recall, several weeks ago we began looking at receiving forgiveness, which is putting on your oxygen mask. If you have not put on your oxygen mask, you will not be able to turn and help your brother in putting on his. If you have not received the free forgiveness for your sins in Christ Jesus, then brothers and sisters, let me tell you, it will be impossible for you to turn and forgive others. You have to put on your own mask. And we looked at that last week. So you have your mask on and you're ready to help. What do I do next? How Do I forgive? We're going to take as our text this morning, Matthew chapter 18, beginning of verse 21, which was also our text last time, and we'll spend um, more time this uh, Lord's Day considering that as we look at extending forgiveness to others. Let me remind you that these are the words of God. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay his master, ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went, and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. These are the words of the Lord. Let's pray together. O God, scarcely 
a more accurate picture of our own hearts be portrayed for us, and we are deeply convicted. Knowing how much you have forgiven us, and knowing how little we forgive others. Father, cause our hearts to be turned to you, to receive your forgiveness so that we, having received it, may turn and forgive others. Forgive us of sin. Drive us to see our need of forgiveness as we relate to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. and Amen. Forgiven people, forgive. That is one of the clearest things to emerge from Jesus' teaching on forgiveness and comes out clearly in the parable of the unforgiving servant. And that is the principle of reciprocity. What you have received, you give back to others. Now you'll notice in that story, the man owed 10,000 talents. That is 160 years of wages. Now this, this man is either lying or he's a fool if he thinks he would ever pay it back. But his fellow servant only owns, owes a hundred denarii. That's maybe three months wages. Do you see the momentous debt that this man has been forgiven of? Moved by pity, the king pardons his debt. And we'll get into the mechanics of, of this story and see how it illustrates the, the great importance of our own forgiveness of others and how we can accomplish that. One commentator puts it this way. Forgiveness is like being given as a gift, a can whose contents are under pressure. As soon as you open the can, the contents will spill out. If they have not spilled out, you may be sure that you have not actually opened the can. That is to say, truly receiving forgiveness leads so intrinsically to the overflowing of forgiveness to others that the two simply cannot be separated. End quote. I don't want to belabor this point, but brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you're struggling to forgive someone, then let me suggest that the problem lies with your receiving God's forgiveness. You're recognizing your forgiveness in Christ. It must begin there. Before you could ever turn and forgive somebody the hundred denarii, you must have first have seen that your whole debt was wiped away. A debt that you could never, ever pay. Forgiven people forgive. But if that is so, then why do we so struggle to forgive others for very petty things? Why is this such a challenging thing? If it's so natural for us to forgive, 
because we have been forgiven, why do we find it so difficult? I want to suggest two basic reasons that we struggle forgiving others. First, we've already mentioned, we maybe haven't received the forgiveness of Christ. But secondly, we often have a very mistaken view of forgiveness and what it really is. There are at least three steps or defining characteristics to true forgiveness. And we're going to look at each of them closely. These are recognizing first your shared condition. We're all sinners. Secondly, it's inwardly paying the debt. And finally, it's willing the other's good. So we're going to look at these three We're going to unpack this story of the parable and look more closely at extending forgiveness under these three headings. First, recognizing your shared condition. Have you ever noticed that when someone sins against us, often our view of them changes very drastically? Someone, let's say someone tells you a lie and you catch them in it, but you don't say anything. You just know they have lied. What happens to your view of that person? Now, that sin begins to dominate your view of them. Now, instead of just Johnny so-and-so, they're now a liar. That one sin begins to define them. And you can't see them. It's like kind of like a, a caricature artist at a fair. How many of you have ever gone to the fair and had your caricature done, right? And they take your features and they exaggerate them. And if you had a little bit bigger ears, they make them really big, right? You have a big nose and it's huge. That's what we do when people sin against us. We take that sin and we turn it and twist it and we begin to define them by it. They lied, so they're liars. We draw exaggerated features. Sometimes all it takes is one sin for us to paint them as only that sin. And now, because of that, they're not a brother and sister in Christ. They're not a fellow image bearer. They are just sin. When we do this, we easily forget we too are sinners. It's helpful to remember in the body of Christ, everyone is simultaneously a sinner, a saint, and a sufferer. We're all sinners, saved by grace. And if you don't begin with that shared condition, you will begin to elevate yourself over your brother or sister. You'll think, well, I I didn't lie, so I'm not a liar. Therefore, I'm better than them, right? I'm above them. I'm more righteous than they are. You can't forgive someone in this state. You can't forgive them because you have reduced them to their sin. Until you can look at them and you can see a fellow image bearer, until you can see someone who Christ came to save, you cannot take the most costly step of inwardly paying their debt and willing their good. If it doesn't begin with our shared condition, a recognition that we are the same. Notice in the story, both servants owe a debt. 
One owes one that's beyond ever being able to be paid. Both of them are debtors. The one forgiven of the debt is not just because he's forgiven doesn't mean he never had a debt. He has forgot his shared condition. He's forgot that he had been forgiven and that he was in the same position as his fellow servant not moments before. I forget who said it, maybe Bunyan. He saw somebody headed to the gallows and he said, there but for the grace of God go I. We have a shared condition. Forgiveness is inwardly giving up the desire to get even. To forgive is to give the perpetrator a gift that they do not in any way deserve. In love, you are absorbing the debt that they owe. Here you are truly walking in Christ's footsteps. Forgiveness is always a form of voluntary suffering that brings about a greater good. Forgiveness is always a voluntary form of suffering. For forgiveness to be from the heart and genuinely Christ-like, it will be costly. And it's a cost that you must pay. What we most often want to do is to make them pay. We want revenge. We want to get even with them. But that's not forgiveness. Imagine a friend borrows a tool from you. He borrows a tool and you use it often, but you love him and you, you want him to use it. He takes it, he destroys it, he loses it. He comes to you and he says, I, I lost your tool and I can't afford to pay you back. For you to forgive him, you have to absorb the cost of that tool. You have to say, oh, I forgive you. And in that, you are either without the tool or you have to go and buy another tool. That is paying the debt. That's paying the cost of that forgiveness. No forgiveness is cheap. All forgiveness requires that a cost be paid. And you must pay it. Christ paid it on your behalf. And the cost that your brother or sister sends is small and meager compared to that cost. But we also must will their good. Flowing from you inwardly paying their debt is willing their good. Now that you have positively responded by seeking to do them good. You're finding ways that you can love and care for them despite what you have just paid. You're not continually thinking, man, $79.99. That tool was expensive. I don't want to buy that again. Every time you see them above their head, you see $79.99. No. You see a forgiven sinner just like you, and you see no debt. And you say, the next time he asks to borrow a tool, you don't say, no way, I remember that. $79.99, I'm still, I still feel it. No, you give him the tool. Maybe with some instructions on how to care for it. Luke twenty three thirty four. 
Jesus from the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here's a, here's a man who never sinned. He's completely innocent. And he's hanging on a brutal tree that's naked and humiliated. Talk about shame. It's the most shameful death imaginable. And he was perfect. He's hanging there for you. And what does he do while he's paying that cost? What does he do from the cross? He cries out to his father to forgive you. They don't know what they're doing. Willing the other's good begins with prayer. It begins with praying for them. You can't stay angry long at somebody that you fervently pray for. And I'm talking you get down on your knees and you're interceding with God for them. God bless them. Give him so many tools he doesn't know what to do with them all. God, change my heart. Willing their good is not trying to exact payment, but instead showing them love. It's not withdrawing. It's not leaving and going back. It's pressing in. It's not withholding. It's freely giving. But my husband has left his socks on the floor every day for the past 45 years. The hamper is right there. How could I forgive him? He's going he's gonna to take advantage of me. Then it's going to be his pants. Surely it's just seven times. But Jesus, Jesus is not saying, yeah, nah, count a little higher. 77 times. No, Jesus says, don't count at all. There is no counting in my economy. It's one and one and one and one and one. It's always one. The hardest, that is the hardest part of forgiveness, is the repetition. I'm going to try and tell this without crying. Our brother Glenn likes to tell the joke of the old couple who were interviewed on their 60th, I believe 60th wedding anniversary, or maybe it was 70th. And they asked, how, how did they stay married so long? And the, uh, the man says, well, and he leans forward toward the interviewer and he said, we never kept a gun in the house. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> But the better part of wisdom says, put the guns away and forgive. And that means keeping short accounts. And that, brothers and sisters, there's no one in your life that you're going to sin more against than your spouse. You are intimately connected with one another for life. And you spend the better part of that life together. And you're going to sin against each other. And if every time you do it, you get out your little notebook and you keep a tab of it, 
Your marriage will rot away. You have to keep short accounts. It means no record of wrong that you bring out and rehearse. Every night before you go to sleep, it's not counting sheep. It's counting your husband's sins or the ways that your wife has sinned against you. And you rehearse them over and over again like a video recorder in your mind. You will not be able to forgive. And the only reason we do that is because we are waiting, hoping, even planning for the day when we can get even with them. Sadly, this happens in marriages. We do this to each other. Even if we're loving and we care for our spouse, we still look for those ways to needle them. And, oh, yes, see, I got you back. You did that to me. Forgiveness says no to those thoughts, absorbing the cost and willing their good. But very quickly, as I close, what about justice? Forgiveness is not antithetical to justice. You may forgive and still seek justice. Many of you know my story. My mentor, who is abusive to his family, and I, and I turned him in to the police. And I told him to repent, to turn himself in to his elders and confess his sin. But I would be turning him into the police for the things that he had done. And sadly, in that case, justice was not served. But forgiveness is not inconsistent with the pursuit of justice. Rachel Denhollander is an, a good example of that. She sought justice against Larry Nassar even as she forgave him. But it also means that forgiveness is not dependent on justice. You can't say, well, unless there's justice, then I'll forgive. You can't say, if he doesn't get what he deserves, then I will never forgive. I need to say something also about reconciliation. My pastor once said that forgiveness, including reconciliation forgiveness, does not equal trust. You may forgive someone from the heart and pay their debt and will their good and yet not trust them. My pastor used the example of someone who stabbed you with a fork. Now, if he stabbed you with a fork, you may take it out and have it bandaged up, and, and he, he would say, oh, I'm so sorry for stabbing you with a fork. I'll never do that again. Please forgive me. Oh, yeah, I forgive you. But then when you go to his house and you see forks there, you might not sit by him ever again. <laughs> Reconciliation does not mean necessarily that you trust them, especially right away. I think there is room for building trust when sin has broken it. But the speed at which you re-trust someone will vary and depend, of course, on the nature of the offense and, the, and also the nature of the rep- repentance. Often, reconciliation for abuse victims does not mean they go and live with them again. If your husband is beating you, please come tell me first. But then, if he's in jail... Or if he gets in trouble, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to live with him again. You may be reconciled to him. You may forgive him and will his good and not ever live with him again. It takes wisdom to know in all of these circumstances. Sermons could be preached and probably 
yearly on forgiveness. It's such a deep topic. Hopefully, however, some misconceptions have, have been corrected. Hopefully, a fire has been lit in you to pursue this deliberate practice. In order for us as a community to have unity, we have to be forgiving. We have to be forgiving, willing each other's good, paying the debt, because we have a shared condition. We're all sinners saved by the grace of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we, we're humbled because we know the many, the many times and the many ways that we have refused forgiveness. We've counted it up. We've held sins against others. We've tallied them and And we've exacted payment before we offered forgiveness. For other times, we've not even sought reconciliation. We've allowed bitterness to grow and separate us from one another because of past sins that were never dealt with. We know, Father, that unless we receive the forgiveness of Christ, we cannot turn and forgive others. So make that a deep reality in our lives And in the lives of this congregation, receiving as we are that undeserving merit of grace and mercy that flows from Christ. And extending that to others, knowing that our debt has been forgiven and there is no debt that compares to that. We ask, Father, that you would give us a disposition to forgive that our community would be marked by it, allowing love to cover a multitude of sins and forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. We pray this in Jesus' name and amen. This table is not just a pledge that your sins are forgiven. 